Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark 8. Um, last week, Peter mentioned that the, past, uh, the passage that he looked at last week and the passage that we'll look at today uh, are the hinge of Mark's gospel. Uh, the first eight chapters of Mark are focused on raising a question in our mind through all of these stories that Jesus is doing. Um, the question that's posed to us is, who is this man? Who is this man who teaches with such unheard of authority, who casts out demons, who heals diseases? Who is this man who, who forgives sins and calms storms and multiplies food in the wilderness? That is the ultimate question. That is the most important question that you can ask yourself. And your answer to that question will set the direction of your life for all eternity. And in Mark 8, the disciples get it. Peter gets it. Peter says it. He says, you're the Messiah. You're the promised king to come. And that's exactly right. right? That's the key insight. But, but what does that mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? Peter's insight prompts a second question that in some very real sense becomes the focus of the, the last half of Mark's gospel, the last eight chapters of the gospel. Um, and that's why this passage, chapter 8, is the hinge of the gospel of Mark. And that second question is this, what do you expect of him? Or to put it another way, what is the Messiah here to do? And, and what does it mean for us to truly follow him? Peter covered through roughly verse 30 last Sunday, um, and since our passage this morning overlaps with that, I want to back up and pick up our reading in verse 27, but we'll focus our time this morning on verses 31 through 38. So if you have your Bibles, again, Mark 8, um, starting in verse 27, please rise uh, for the reading of God's Word. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with the disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it? For someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? 
If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. This is God's word. Um, you may be seated. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it shows us Jesus. It reveals to us uh, who he is, who you are, what you came to do, what that means for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach us from your word today, that your spirit would be taking your word and applying it to our hearts, that we would hear today what we need from you, from your word. Lord, show us Jesus and, and show us what it means to follow him. Lord, would our, not, would our lives not be the same for having been in your presence in worship and having heard your word and, and heard it preached? So, Lord, work in our lives. We invite you to do so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, expectations are powerful things. Um, on, on one hand, they can spur us on to great things. Stephen Covey has said that you treat a man as he is and he'll remain as he is. Treat a man as he can and should be, and he'll become as he can and should be. And great coaches do this all the time, right? They expect their players to rise to the challenge, and, and they call out of their players more than the players think they have to give, and the team is better as a result of it. And so expectations can, uh, can spur us on, but expectations can also let us down, can't they? Uh, Shakespeare famously said, expectation is the root of all heartache. So, good morning. Welcome, <laughs> welcome to Sunday morning. Expectation is the root of all heartache. But, you know, Shakespeare's on to something. The more we want something, the greater the letdown if we don't get it. Christmas is full of expectations for kids, and I don't know what Christmas was like in your house growing up, but for me as a kid, uh, we couldn't wait to tear into the presents on Christmas morning, and in our family, we had a tradition where we would, before we could do that, we had to, we had to take our stockings down and, and go through our stockings first, and, and uh, you know, there's this bulging stocking with things stuffed out the top, and you're just, wow, this is going to be cool, but very quickly in the Sage household, as kids, we learn to lower our expectations. Uh, there's candy, there's toys, but for some reason, I don't know about what happened in your house, but my mom thought the best way to stuff a stocking was to fill it with new underwear. And as a kid on Christmas morning, that's just not all that exciting. I was telling the first service uh, during the live stream that if my mom is listening today, I'm sure I'm going to hear it when I FaceTime with her tonight as I call her out with this illustration. But I mean, really, what kid wants new underwear for Christmas? So expectations can spur us on. They can, they can disappoint us. They can let us down. But they can do something else as well. Uh, in addition to those things, um, they can mislead us. Our expectations can mislead us. Historian Daniel Borston suggests that Americans in particular today uh, suffer from all too extravagant expectations. And in his book, The Image, Borston makes this observation. Bear with me as this. This is a, somewhat of an extended quote, but I think it's helpful. He says, we expect anything and everything. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. 
We expect compact cars that are spacious, luxurious cars which are economical. We expect to be rich and charitable, powerful and merciful, active and reflective, kind and competitive. We expect to eat and stay thin. That one hurts. Uh, To be constantly on the move and ever more neighborly. To revere God and to be God. Never have people been more masters of their environment, yet never has a people felt more deceived and disappointed, for never has a people expected so much more than the world could offer. Interesting. Shakespeare may have been more insightful about our time than he was his own. Unrealistic expectations set us up for all kinds of heartache, and they mislead us. Our passage today shows us the misleading expectations of Jesus' disciples. And Jesus begins in this passage to reorient them, to reorient their thinking, to reorient their hearts to God's purposes, both about their expectations for Him and what it meant for Him to be the Messiah, but also for them, what it means to follow Him. And what He tells us in this passage is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. He's going to tell us what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to follow a king who's headed to a cross. Peter and the disciples rightly recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, or in the Greek language of the day, the Christ, but their expectations of what that would mean for him and for them were still all wrong. And so in addition to recognizing that Jesus is the king, which they rightly did, they and we need to recognize that the king will go to a cross. The king will go to a cross. Old Testament prophecy taught that the Messiah would be this long-awaited king who would gather God's people from exile, he would defeat their enemies, he would restore their glory, and he would usher in God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And all of those things will happen at some point by the Messiah. And so they, they naturally had all kinds of expectations of what that might mean for Jesus during his earthly ministry. But immediately after Peter's profession of faith, Mark tells us that Jesus began to teach them, verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected, that He must be killed, and after three days rise again. And to be crystal clear, Mark adds in verse 32, He spoke plainly about this. Now, Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Imagine how elated they must have felt when Jesus confirmed that Peter was right. They expected that the Messiah King would usher in this immediate political revolution. He would kick the Romans out of Palestine, and they're thinking, we're with this guy who has been prophesied for hundreds of years to come. We're his inner circle, right? We're a big deal. And we have similar expectations, don't we? We expect that if we believe in God, He'll bless us with only good things as we understand that word. Right? And so we're shocked when we're sick or when we lose a job or we suffer in some way. I mean, how could God let this happen? Something must be horribly wrong. This is not part of the deal that I expected. 
And so I think we'd be just as shocked as the disciples were when Jesus immediately started talking about being murdered by his enemies and explaining that this is something that must happen in order to fulfill God's plan. He very much shattered their expectations. The king on a cross? Are you kidding me? How is that possible? How can he defeat God's enemies and reign forever on David's throne if he dies? And to be sure, in this passage, Jesus explains that he'll rise again after three days, but that was all very confusing to them. Uh, We have this image, I think, of people from ancient history as being very superstitious, Uh, but I don't think that's very fair. They were just as surprised by miracles as we would be if we saw them. They knew that men don't walk on water. <laughs> they knew that you don't multiply bread and fish out of, out of thin air. And they knew that dead people don't get off the table and walk away. And they just couldn't fit what Jesus was saying about rising again into their existing mental models, at least not until it happened. And even then, they had to be convinced of it. And so verse 32, how does Peter respond to all this crazy talk? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter's expectations of what it meant to follow God had no place for suffering and defeat. Verse 32, when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. And it's, it's really remarkable that just a moment earlier, God had opened Peter's eyes, the eyes of faith, to recognize who Jesus was. He's the Messiah. But now, who knows, minutes later, Peter is voicing not the mind of God, not the thoughts of God, but the very temptation that Satan gave to Jesus in the wilderness at the start of his public ministry. He suggested a way to glory that avoided the cross. You can have glory without suffering. And Jesus is saying, Peter, if you resist my plan to die, you resist God. You side with Satan. Satan doesn't want me to die because if I don't die, you'll be in hell. The last thing Satan wants from me is to die to pay the penalty of your sin, but that's what God wants, Peter, because he loves you. My death is necessary for you to be able to know the redeeming love of God. Peter's problem was much bigger than he thought it was. He thought his problem was Roman oppression or some other circumstance in his life that Jesus was going to fix. We think our problem is our job or lack thereof, our health, a relationship, or some other circumstance in our lives. But Peter's and our biggest problem is our sin. It's our sin that separates us from God. Jesus had to defeat that enemy first. And so faith recognizes that his death on the cross, his resurrection three days later was necessary for our salvation. And so it's not enough to just recognize who Jesus is, to affirm the truth that he's the Messiah, the Son of God. The demons do that. True faith allows God to challenge our assumptions, to challenge our expectations, and to redirect the way we think about ourselves, 
the way we think about what's important in life and the way we think about our world. True faith allows God to challenge us, to challenge our assumptions and expectations about ourselves, about what's important in life, and about how we view the world around us. And so Jesus goes on to explain that if we're to follow Jesus, that means that we too must take up our cross. And what Jesus says about this is so important to what it means to have a relationship with God. It's so universally applicable, applies to everybody, that he doesn't just say it to his disciples. They're they're on their retreat in Caesarea Philippi, and, and he's like, let's get the crowds back. And so he gathers the crowds around him with his disciples in order to explain this. And he says in verse 34, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Friends, this is a bombshell. They all knew what that meant. The cross was the most horrific way that the Romans could kill you, execute you. And Jesus is saying that if you want to follow him, if you want to benefit from his death on a cross, you need to take up your own cross. Not to earn your salvation. It's not as if you're adding something to Jesus' death for you, but uh, rather it's a response of faith to the salvation that Jesus has accomplished for you. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and pastor, famously said, when Christ calls a man to die, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. It's about, it's not about God making you comfortable. If you're a Christian, your life on your terms for your own purposes is over. Your life on your terms for your own purposes is over. You cannot squeeze Jesus into the edges of your life, and you can't approach him like a genie in the bottle to, pl- to bless the plans you have for your life. Self-denial, taking up your cross, means letting go of self-determination and independence. These are American cultural values, friends. This is so countercultural. If you're to take up your cross and follow Jesus, you are no longer allowed self-determination and independence. You are submitting to God. You're replacing those things with obedience to Christ, with dependence on His power and His grace at work in your life. It means being devoted to His cause, living all of your life for your kingdom, for His kingdom, not your kingdom, for His kingdom. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Galatians 2.20. He said, I've been crucified with Christ. He's taken up his cross. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, Paul says. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In another place, Paul put it this way. He said, for Christ's love compels me. Having been convinced that one died for all, therefore all died, and those who, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. When you understand that the king of the universe, 
the creator of all things, the one who is most worthy of all praise, who is supreme over everything, when you understand that that king humbled himself by taking on a human nature, leaving his glory in heaven, coming into this world, submitting himself to this broken world, to the law of God, and being obedient to the point of death on a cross for you, when you understand that, when you experience that by faith, your heart changes. Your priorities change. You can't see the world in the same way that you used to. Suddenly, your small plans are not so important. What becomes important is the glory of God, your delight in Him. A Christian who has the Spirit of God living inside of them wants to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so as disruptive as it can be to have our expectations challenged and shaken, Faith responds to God's love for us by devoting everything to the King and His cause, devoting our our very lives to the King and His purpose, His mission. And the paradox, the paradox of the Christian life is that denying yourself is the way to satisfaction. It's the way to joy. Humbling yourself before God is the way to God raising you up in glory. Taking up your cross is the only path to ultimate joy. Do you believe that? In verses 35 and 38, Jesus gives four reasons why denying ourselves, taking up our crosses, and following him is the absolute best way to live your life. Look at the first one, verse 35. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Again, I ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe God's Word on that point, Jesus' teaching? Or do you believe that the way to save your life, to make your life count, is to be involved in all of the possible activities that you can that will pad your academic resume so that you get into the right school, so you get the right job, so you make the right amount of money, so that you can buy the right stuff to ensure that you and your family are comfortable. It's the American dream. Jesus calls us to lose our lives for his sake and the gospel's. That means prioritizing being with Jesus, and it means being sent by Jesus. Understanding that our very identity is that of witnesses, ambassadors, committed to spreading the good news through our actions and through our words, wherever we have opportunity to do so. So do you invest consistent time in God's presence, in His Word, in prayer, in personal worship, because you want to experience Jesus and enjoy Him? Or do you just don't think you have time for that? Because truth be told, other things are more important to you. Do you gladly sacrifice your time to pursue the lost and the hurting with the hope of the kingdom? Or do you sacrifice your time on other pursuits that have nothing to do with Jesus and his gospel? Jesus is saying that whoever lives a self-centered life focused on this present world will not find eternal life with God. But here's Jesus' point. 
losing our lives for Christ and for the sake of the gospel is actually the way to finding life. It's, it's the way to the abundant life. The self-centered life narrows the horizon of our soul as our focus becomes smaller and smaller on ourselves. But the Christ-centered life of mission expands our horizon, our vision. It becomes wonderfully enlarged. It overflows with the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and things like this. It, it, in helping others, it, we are helped. In loving, we experience the love of God and the love of others. John Bloom explains it this way. Uh, again, bear with, me, bear with me. This is an extended quote, but I, I think it's really good. He says, Jesus wasn't calling his followers to some stoic life of self-sacrifice for a noble cause. His was an invitation to joy beyond imagination. An invitation to joy beyond imagination. The broad road of the world was lined with seductive false promises appealing to and blinding sinful human heart eyes, and it was leading many to a horror beyond imagination. So Jesus was calling the fo his followers to deny themselves the world's paltry, brief joys that they might have overflowing eternal joy. To deny themselves hell that they might have heaven. Jesus has to shatter our expectations so that we're open to living a different life, a better life, a better way of living. The next two reasons are very similar. Verse 36, it doesn't benefit you in the least if you gain the whole world and lose your soul because you're not following Christ. Verse 37, because if that happens, you can't give anything that you've amassed in order to get it back. You miss your soul and you miss everything. Nothing will compensate for losing your soul. And verse 38 points out that if we refuse to delight in and follow Jesus, then despite what we might say, we're demonstrating that we're ashamed of Jesus, that we don't value him. We don't value the sacrifice he made for us or the kingdom purpose he's called us to. Other things are just more important to us than he is. So two of the major themes of Mark's gospel come to a head in this passage Mark has spent the first eight chapters showing us Jesus leading the disciples to finally arrive at this place where they recognize him to be a God's promised king. And he's going to spend the next eight chapters through the end of the gospel preparing us for the cross and what it means to be a disciple who follows a king who goes to a cross. No one expected this. But it is the only way to a life of ultimate and eternal joy. It's the only way, friends. Faith recognizes that Jesus is the King, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Faith recognizes that His death on the cross and His resurrection three days later addresses our biggest need and was necessary for our salvation. And faith follows this crucified King, denying ourselves, taking up our crosses and following Him, devoting our lives to our King and His cause. 
And so as I close, let me just ask you, what is God saying to you this morning from His Word, by His Spirit? As you think about these things that I've shared with you this morning, what is God saying to you right now about where you're at in your life, how you're following? I'm going to give you a minute to just pray silently where you're seated, and then I'll close us in prayer in a minute. Ask God, God, what are you saying to me today from this passage? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you disrupt our lives and you shatter our expectations. Because truth be told, if you didn't do that, Lord, we would be in the weeds. But you tell us that the kingdom of God is near, therefore repent and believe the gospel to stop following the path that we're on, the ways that are shaped by this world and our own sinful desires, our selfish self-interest, our, our narrow vision, to turn around and walk the other way, to live more fully into your kingdom today than we did yesterday because of the love of our King who gave everything for us. Lord, help us to find our life in Christ. Help us to find our purpose in his kingdom, in the gospel, in the gospel's sake for the world. Lord, make us a people who so experience the love of Jesus that we are compelled to live for you. Lord, that we actually find joy and satisfaction and purpose and meaning and significance in, in you and not the other stuff that competes with you. And so Lord, bear your, bear, uh, do your work in us, bear fruit in us, bear fruit through us, Lord. Thank you that you invite us to join you in what you want to do to see other people come to know the Savior. Lord, enlarge our vision, change our hearts, make us more like your Son, and help us to glorify and enjoy you. Amen.